Hey there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a professional who wants to have a greater impact in the lives of children and families by building resilience, this podcast is for you. Join us to become a trauma-informed champion by nurturing connections through relational health to help kids and families thrive. Every time you join me, you'll hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use every day. Hey there, I am super thrilled to join all of you today and feature my incredible friend and colleague, Emily Daniels. Let me read you her bio. Emily Daniels is the founder of Hear This Now and the author of The Regulated Classroom. She has a BA in sociology and women's studies and a master's of education in school counseling from the University of Delaware. She also holds an MBA and she's a nationally certified counselor. She continuously uses her learning to understand the applied science of trauma. She loves nerding out about all things neurobiology, refining her skills, broadening her knowledge, and improving her effectiveness as a trainer, educator, and consultant. Emily is the founder of The Regulated Classroom. It is a curriculum that was developed for educators by an educator. And it is a framework that enables educators to cultivate conditions for felt safety in the classroom. She developed this framework after spending years as a school counselor working with dysregulated students and staff. And today we're gonna learn all about what that means and how to apply it. Thank you so much, Emily, for being here. Thank you so much, Amy, for having me, for Dr. Amy, for having me. It's such an honor. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. So that's your fancy academic bio. What else do you want people to know about who you are and what you're up to right now? Yeah. So I live in a little tiny town in the Northeast called Hancock, New Hampshire. And I'm pretty dug in there with my husband and our two children who are now 16. My daughter is 16. Her name's Hannah. And my son is 18, getting ready to go off to college. Um, and so big transition for us, but we, we really love living here in New Hampshire, um, and being a part of our community, active parts of our community. And, um, you know, having been very active educators in this region for a long time as well. Awesome. Yeah, I was living vicariously along with Emily. Both of us had graduating seniors this year. And so we're going to just hold space for each other as they head off to college this fall. I know. It's such a big transition. Is he a firstborn as well? My daughter, firstborn, heading off the, fir- the first oh, kid. Oh, your daughter. Okay, college. sorry. Yeah. Right. Your son's the rodeo king. He's the that's rodeo. right. That's right. We're flip-flopped. <laughs> Oldest daughter. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a big deal, actually. I mean, it is quite dysregulating, actually. Oh my God. This transition upon us. Um, Just because, you know, it's a big change in life. And then also, I don't know about you, but you also, I feel like hold your children no matter where they are. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's a big change for them. And I just feel that really in my felt sense, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm carrying that for sure. Yeah. Okay, so we've already used the word felt sense and regulation a couple of times. <laughs> Let me just back up the listeners and remind folks that this month we're featuring connection within education because kids are headed back to school, whether they're littles or bigs or like mine and Emily's really big kids headed off to college. Um, and Emily, you're an expert in this space of the regulated classroom. Can you first just start by telling listeners what does it mean to be regulated? Yeah, it's a great question, Aim. So, Dr. Amy, sorry, I, I think it's great. So, regulation—the way that I define it in the regulated classroom, anyways—is a 
optimal state of functioning in the nervous system. So it's like when you feel energized, but you're also at ease, um, that would be sort of an optimal state of regulation, which is what, you know, I think we're really striving for in, in our educational settings is to both be showing up in that way as the adults, and then also helping to support that in our students as well. And, you know, of course, regulation is a, um, it's a fluid, it's a fluid concept because, you know, as as humans, we modulate in and out of experiencing regulation, depending on what's happening in the moment. Um, but I would, I think we could both agree that a lot of our educators have experienced prolonged dysregulation in light of COVID and just other, other things that have been going on um, in, in recent years. So you had mentioned, or I read in your bio that you got into this field because you were working with so many kids who were dysregulated. Can you just tell people a little bit more about how you got into this work and how you found the space of regulation? Yeah. Well, actually my career started like that as a school counselor. So I was, um, I want, I want to say like drafted into my first school counseling job before I even finished graduate school in Wilmington, Delaware. And it was an inner city school, had a veteran counselor leaving the position and they came to the school, the graduate school and said, do you have any kind of promising, you know, candidates here who might want to step in and, and take over? And somehow um, I was elected. <laughs> And so my first experience of being a school counselor was with um, ch children and, and young adults that were extremely dysregulated. I did not have that language then. I did not have an understanding of survival behavior at all or stress behavior. I just thought, wow, these kids are off the hook. Like these kids are really tough and they're scary um, and they're angry. And I just, you know, so... Um, you know, I, but, but once I got into the work, I was so, you know, like earnest to want to, to be effective, to want to support them mm -hmm. because I've always had a really deep love for kids and want to be that adult. You know, I knew then that like a one adult could make a difference for a child. I just didn't have any understanding about why that really was. I just knew it was true. Um, and so, you know, dysregulation right now, I think, looks much the same way in the classroom, which is that students are showing up in developmentally immature ways and or they seem more reactionary about things in the classroom. Um, and, and us as adults also are dysregulated because our window of tolerance has narrowed through mm -hmm. the overwhelm of recent years. Yeah. I mean, you know, Emily, I sit at this intersection and the listeners that hear this podcast, sometimes our health professionals, sometimes our early educators, sometimes our K-12 educators. And I think all of them want to understand regulation more. All of them desire to feel more effective with dysregulated behaviors. Mm -hmm. So how do we get from seeing a behavior that feels really dysregulated, right? A child acting out or acting unsafe somehow to a state of regulation? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's a big question, Amy, and it's a lot of the focus of what I'm trying to equip educators within the regulated classroom. So there's a couple things. One, I think the lenses that we wear make a big difference, um, <clears throat> meaning that I wear, I'm a, I call myself a polyvagalist at this point um, because I am sort of a devotee of that framework. Mm -hmm. And so polyvagal theory helps us understand the science underlying the importance of feeling safe and what that does 
to human development, human behavior, and human experience. And um, so I think, you know, one thing is to just sort of first consider how we are, are feeling on the inside, you know, taking note, taking inventory of um, how does my body react at this moment in time when we experience dysregulation, not only our own, but even when we're watching others experience it. Uh, and that's a very real thing. And it's not a common thing. I don't think I ever in any of my training uh, prior to meeting this science ever remember anyone really asking me to notice my felt sense. There was no language for that. Um, certainly we talked about emotions and affective states, but nothing that was related to the inner workings. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm really answering your question well or not, but I think it's it's twofold. It's one, what's happening for you on the inside? What is your own felt sense dialing into that? And then two, what are the lenses that you wear in order to interpret what you experience on the inside? So it's like that meaning making in my in my in the regulated classroom comes after the self-awareness and the more embodiment work. So if I'm an educator listening, I have a felt sense and my students have a felt sense too. Yeah. Yes, we do. So we very much, it's, it's really interesting because I'll just tell you this little story to maybe help, you know, clarify what I'm describing. So when I was, um, when I was working as a student assistance counselor, which is basically like a crisis counselor in a local high school, I had a lot of students that I was working with that experienced profound trauma. And I wanted to help them understand the connection between those lived experiences and their, many of them had issues with substance misuse. And, you know, so their cravings for substances as a result of what they were struggling with. And so I went to a conference in Boston where I heard for the first time Dr. Peter Levine speak, mm -hmm. and he started describing what he calls the somatic experience. And what he described was that lump in your throat or that pit in your belly. And I was like, yes, yes. How come no one has talked about that before? Because myself, having had trauma in my own childhood, I knew those visceral, powerful feelings really well, like in a very embodied way, in a felt sense way. Um, but I never had any language for it. And I had no way to identify it. I just, you know, if people would ask me, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm fine, you know, mm -hmm. because I didn't, I didn't know about Th that that was a thing. I actually thought I was the only person who experienced that. I didn't really realize it was a universal thing that we have these powerful visceral, visceral experiences when we're distressed. And so um, uh, we have it and our students absolutely have it. In fact, children, you know, especially very young children, like infants and toddlers, their visceral experiences are pretty much what you see on the outside. So when they're hungry, they cry. When they're wet, they cry. When they're cold, they cry. Those are all visceral experiences that convey a discomfort in the body or on the body. And they're expressing that discomfort through their behavior. You know, yeah. that kind of never goes away, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> just looks different as we age. So I hope, I hope this is kind of a light bulb for professionals who are li listening, that we all have this felt sense about us, but we aren't encouraged to self-reflect on what is our current state, like that lump in your throat or the knot in your belly. Absolutely. And for 
a child that's going to come out maybe as acting out or being disruptive or maybe even internalizing in a classroom. Shutting down. Exactly. And shutting down. That's exactly right. So what we know is in our culture, especially in the U.S., but we, I mean, if we think and reflect on what's common parenting that I'm not saying, I'm not, no judgment here, but, you know, a child falls or hurts themselves or whatnot. And, and we may say to them, um, you're all right. You're all right. You're fine. You're fine. Come on brush it off, brush it off. Mm-hmm. And we're rushing them to actually dissociate from what they're experiencing in that moment. Because we, we, we do train our children not to be disruptive. We, most of us do anyways. That's kind of how we were parented. So what happens is there's a process that most of us go through where we stop really actually being in touch with what's really going on on the inside. And so there's a distancing from it. So that's why I could say at 10 years old, you know, I'm fine, even though on the inside, I was not okay, you know, and my chest was felt like crushing pressure of, of sadness, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, that that's, and that's what I'm actually trying to help educators walk back to is being embodied because that is where co-regulation lives in the classroom. It actually starts with the adult. And so they themselves have to be alive in their felt sense. Okay. So I want everybody to listen, right? We basically train it out of people. Don't pay attention. You're fine. Especially someone with complex trauma, right? They may not have had the resources or support or safe adult to experience felt sense of safeties. And so we train it out of people. And so you're saying part of your work is training it back in. Exactly. That's exactly right, Amy. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like I would never have wished a pandemic on this country in a thousand million years. It was devastating and it has left us with a raw aftermath. But the one blessing, the major blessing and silver lining that I see in this is that we're actually hungry for this kind of experience now, because we see how broken we are and we experience how tired we are and how just (laughs) under-resourced we are as the adults, you know? And I feel like that would have been a much harder, well, it was a much harder case to make pre-COVID because we were so committed to, we're fine, we're fine. We're just forging ahead. We're fine, we're fine. And we're not fine. And so this is an opportunity where I now get to say to educators, we're not fine. We are not fine. Nothing, Mm -hmm. not you. We are not fine. Mm -hmm. And that is normal given what we've been through. That's actually quite adaptive now. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's another thing too, that people really resonate with in the professional development that I offer. And in the framework is that I'm really trying to help them decouple the experience of being disembodied or distanced from their felt sense and shame. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because always we feel it yeah, yeah, yeah. And most of us feel a sense of shame when we don't, when we're not in a healthy place, we feel like there's this inadvertent shame thing that comes over us. And um, it's, it's not shame. It's, it's not shameful. It's normal what many of us are experiencing at this point in time. So I know you go way in depth into this in your trainings, but for the folks that are listening to just get a little taste of it, if you're a professional working with kids, how do you just, what are two or three things you could do to tune into your felt sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that I do a lot in my professional development is actually engage these educators in one of the four core practices that are part of the framework. So there's connectors, activators, settlers, and affirmations. And essentially, they're practices of co-regulation. And so I, I integrate them into the design of the training so that people actually have opportunities to experience something in the present moment, in the here and now, and then immediately reflect on, what do you notice? What do you notice coming up for you? What do you notice coming up for the collective? So I do that too. I also... Because I feel like there's a um, there's almost a dual consciousness that we really need, both, both as parents and as teachers, which mm-hmm. is how am I doing, but also how are we doing, right? And so in a classroom environment, that's especially important. So I use the language of how are you doing, and then how is the collective doing? Mm-hmm. Because there's a there's a there's a dynamic feedback that happens there. So um, one of the things I say to folks is just when it occurs to you, notice what you can notice. And mm-hmm. that's it. Because whatever you can notice is probably more than you've been noticing. <laughs> so it may be like, oh, I noticed the group has more energy, or I noticed that my heart rate picked up and that my palms are sweating and I'm starting to feel anxious with this. I'm like, good, 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 good. So it's not about like, there's a right thing to notice or a wrong thing to notice. It's just notice what you can notice. And that's very much my influence of some, so I was trained in somatic experiencing after I learned about it. And that's my, that's definitely borrowed from that is notice what you can notice is the first thing. And then the second thing is notice if it shifts. Mm-hmm. So the noticing is actually the beginning of shifting a state and shifting a felt sense. Um, and, you know, I say all the time too, there are no bad states. There are no wrong ways to be. Mm -hmm. All we can do and hope for is that we have more agency about how we shift how we're doing. So like our bodies are going to react to things that they associate with threat or danger or risk, but do we have agency over that shift once it has taken place? Do you know what I'm saying? Like once we notice dysregulation coming up in our bodies, do we have the capacity to be aware of that and then to do something to shift it? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to give our listeners like a concrete example. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I am a kindergarten teacher and I am in the first weeks of school and I notice, right? I notice that I have a lot of mix of like internal excitement and also fear. Yes. Yep. Totally. And I notice when I go into my classroom that there's lots of buzzing energy and a lot of, I'm just going to say probably how most educators feel it. Lots of attention seeking. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So we won't unpack that language for now, but yes, absolutely. What you're describing, I think is very accurate, Amy. And I think even kindergarten all the way up would describe it that way. So one of the things I say to folks is, okay, what you want to be able to do is microdose in. So when I talk about microdosing, I'm talking about very titrated experiences that you are using deliberately to try and collectively synchronize the classroom. So you're gonna to wanna to microdose in something that's either energizing and synchronizing the collective nervous system, like an activator, or you are 
collectively downregulating through a settler practice. Those are the two practices of the four core practices that are really about trying to get things more synchronized because humans are built to be in synchrony with one another, but it requires a lot of attunement and it requires a lot of practice essentially. And it's also what I think has been most disrupted in the modern way of way of life. So you know, I say to folks, you're going to want to microdose in these kinds of activators and settler experiences for one to five minutes through the course of the day. And as you do that, you want to notice what you can notice. That's literally what I say to them. So like in the course of training, we're actually doing some of these things together and we're, you know, I'm teaching them a hand clapping sequence. I'm teaching them a ditty. I'm showing them how to do Miss Mary, Mac, 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 all dressed mm-hmm. in black. But all these things that we used to do with children um, or that children used to do with one another that have been lost in the social landscape of childhood, but they had a good purpose, right? And so Dr. Perry, he's another person that I study a lot from as well. And he says that patterned, repetitive, rhythmic movements and somatosensory experiences elicit the sensation of safety in the body. So if we're looking to help our ourselves and our kids experience more felt sense and 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 optimize that felt sense of safety, we want to be doing patterned repetitive things together. Does that make sense? Does that yeah, make sense? totally. So Emily and I have lots of practice doing this. I want all the listeners to know that, right? Like we have lots of practice doing this and Emily can teach you a framework to do this in your classroom. But I want on this podcast, people to have this practical tool. So what I'm hearing her say is notice me, notice us. Yes. And then just try to start to do things that help with some regulation. And so if I'm a kid, I'm going to go back to being the kindergarten teacher. I have this mix of excitement and also a little bit of fear. And I notice my classroom is kind of disruptive and maybe attention seeking or that's how it feels to me. And instead of running away from my classroom, which is what I might want to do, (laughs) I'm going to just lean in. And I'm channeling like other incredible early educators who would go in and turn on some drumming music, have the lights low, talk in a calm voice, right? So they're just going to start to try these things. And then I love Emily's language that you're all hearing. I'm going to just notice what I notice. What happens? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And notice, notice them or notice us with them and then notice me and then notice us with them and then notice me so that we can become aware that there is that there is that feedback loop. So when our kids are actually synchronizing with us, it is the best felt sense ever, right? Like true attunement is so powerful and it's the most safest place you can be, right? Is when you really are synchronized with another human. And that can happen if we're deliberate and intentional about it. Now, it might sound, I mean, there's, there is more There is more that can be done, of course. You know, part of what I offer in addition to professional development and the framework is I also offer products that contain the best quality sensory tools on the market because sometimes our sensitive nervous systems need more input to to, to regulate um, and to be available for co-regulation. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is a perfect like panacea, I am just saying that you will notice a shift and in all likelihood that shift is going to be towards more 
cohesion and organization and away from chaos and just, you know, uh, cacophony, you know what I mean? Just like dysregulation. So, you know, and sometimes certain children or us, the adults need additional supports for that to be optimized. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Emily that, and we'll link up to Emily's uh, website in the show notes, but I love that Emily provides like, Hey, here's a kit to get you started to have and create some regulated space that we know works well, because sometimes we just need, like, just tell me what, what I can start with. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like I'd be like, okay, if you're one of those teachers, that kindergarten teacher that really is feeling anxious, perhaps you should start day one with wearing your weighted scarf, you know, for 10 minutes, you know, the weighted scarf that we carry because it's the only one that's scientifically proven to help your body to settle down. So it's like, you put that on, no one even knows you're wearing weight and it's beautiful and it's warm if you're in a freezing air conditioned classroom. Um, (laughs) And, and it's giving your body a little bit of input so that you can lead those co-regulation practices that you can lead that activator with a greater sense of ease and the kids will pick up on that, you know? So, um, so whether I'm a teacher, Emily, in a kindergarten classroom or in a high school classroom, or maybe I am a speech language pathologist or an occupational therapist in a school, I can do the noticing with me and with us in any environment. Is that right? That is correct. And you can also do pretty much all of the practices that are contained in the framework are things that can be done one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So it might seem strange, but for example, walking um, in step with a child is a form of pattern making. It's a form of rhythmic activity. So mm-hmm. in, you know, you want to walk, you're going to literally like want to keep the same exact stride then you've established a rhythm with that child. Um, You know, you can sway to a piece of music, the two of you, you know, at the beginning of a session of maybe you're an OT or something to get, or you can pass a weighted ball back and forth to the rhythm of the song, you know? And so I I really do teach people a lot about rhythmic movement because it's, again, it's not something that's just part and parcel of our culture. People actually hear the word rhythm and go, I don't have any rhythm. I can't do that. <laughs> like, no, no, no. We all came into the world by, you know, rhythms are what brought us into the world. And, you know, we are also organized by rhythms around us in the natural world, like light and dark and that sort of thing and sleep and wake cycles and all of that. But you can, because rhythm, all that rhythm is, is something that has a predictable pattern to it. And so it gives our bodies a really profound feeling of safety because in a crazy world and in a chaotic world, what makes us feel safer is when we can predict what's coming. Mm -hmm. And so that's what a rhythm provides us. So yeah, I spend a lot of time just kind of, you know, and even I tell people, it doesn't even always have to do with music or movement. It can be a visual pattern. So like when you see something on Pinterest that really appeals to you, it's probably the pattern and the rhythm in the visual that's actually settling your nervous system and pleasing to your nervous system. So yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done. A lot, a lot. But I really love, Emily, that you're saying that you could do this in a large classroom, you could do it in a small classroom, you could do this one-on-one with a child to help them regulate. Um, Talk to me about where connection comes in, felt safety and connection, because I think sometimes professionals working with kids just think like, well, I'm a good person, I can connect with kids, so I can just do that, like, but there's, that sometimes can create a little bit of a 
disconnect, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I, so the ways in which Perry's work has influenced my framework is that I really do subscribe to his um, heuristic, the regulate, relate, and then reason. And the reason why I'm such a, um, and so that's called the, his sequence of engagement is what I'm referring to. But one of the reasons why I'm such a devotee to it is because I was that counselor who did make rapport fairly effortlessly with kids and staff. But I would notice in moments of like ex extreme misbehavior, if you want to call it that, I would call it now dysregulation. But um, I would notice that 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 rapport didn't stand, meaning it was not enough of a in those moments of extreme, it wasn't enough to turn the tide in that behavior. And so it wasn't until I met Perry's work and understood that physiological regulation underlies the ability to connect and to relate and then to reason that I was like, oh, that's why that didn't work. So if you know, if you are interested in building rapport with children and establishing felt safety in the classroom from a psychological standpoint, you want to do a lot of regulating, co-regulating with them, because then that opens up the brain's pathways for relational connection and it deepens it too. And that's part of why affirmations is one of the core practices in the framework, because when you're actually experiencing that true sense of belonging or that true felt safety, you want to double down deliberately on that in your body memory and in the student's body memory. Absolutely. So here's what I love about this. I think there are people, like you said, who naturally think I connect with kids, I create great relationships. So if you're not, yeah, it's probably nothing wrong with you and nothing wrong with the child. It means that we have to go back to a space of regulation. Yeah, exactly. Regulation is foundational to everything we want in a school setting. Everything, really everything we want in any setting. <laughs> it's, well, and, it's and that's the space, right? Like when I, even when I work with healthcare professionals, I think about like somebody coming in and trying to give a kid a shot or talk to them about, you know, whatever needs to come up at that well child visit, whether it be drugs or alcohol or sexual relationships or, you know, just any pro social development. If you don't have that felt safety. Yeah. Um, is there a way, by the way, so I'm just thinking out loud that we can get to felt safety pretty quickly, Emily. I mean, I think so. You know, it's really interesting because um, I was talking with someone recently in the last couple of weeks who, who had just had a meeting with Dr. Porges. It was an interview that he's actually going to give. It's, a, it's called the Legacy Talks. And um, <clears throat> Porges was describing, he said that, and, and I'm paraphrasing, and I heard this secondhand, but it kind of makes sense to me. He, he was describing the impetus for why he developed the polyvagal theory or like what sparked his interest in wanting to try to explain some of human, human phenomenon. And what he was saying is that there are, there are times where people can just by the, by the sort of presence of another person, they can just feel at ease. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's now tried to kind of dissect that and figure out what are all the variables that affect that sense just that that's really almost effortless. Right. But I do think that, um, being self-aware and being able to show up to the work very authentically. I mean, one of the things that I do with educators just to kind of test their levels of authenticity is we do a mirroring exercise. 
um, where we try to get each other to kind of smile by making outrageous faces at each other. And what I find often is that educators are really good, especially special, special educators, are really good at being completely unaffected by someone else's ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. And although that is, and although that is in many ways really good, because then they're not necessarily reacting to the kids, it can also be an indication of how much they're just not really present. Mm-hmm. And I feel like our kids, I know that our students, especially our younger students, but students of all ages, they pick up on that. Yeah. So when we're, when we are present and self-aware, mm-hmm. our kids resonate with it. And I think that that does inspire felt safety pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'll, we'll link up to this, you know, whether you're thinking about Bruce Perry's work or, or Dr. Porges's work, I have had a couple of brilliant professionals take their work to make it, you know, practical. One of them was a pediatrician who made videos that a parent could show their child before they came in to say like, I'm your doctor and you're going to see me for a well child exam. So that when the child went in, they noticed them already. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why we have back to school night. Right. And that's why we have like pre-meetings with teachers. I mean, like this, I'm having this like kind of light bulb moment of like, Oh, what those teachers are doing is they're creating felt safety so that when you come to class the first day, you already know me. Yes. Yes. No. And that's really smart. And I mean, there are, um, so there's two essential educator capacities within the framework. There's four core practices and two essential educator capacities. And we talked about the first one a lot, which is tracking your state and your body state. But the second one is exactly what you're describing right now. And I call it recruiting the realm of social engagement. And what it means is being really intentional with our relational cues of safety coupled with the environmental cues of safety. Um, so when we do take the time to soften our gaze or to make a recording, you know, to try to lessen and diminish the anxiety about novelty, those things can, for some kids really land as a cue of safety. Certainly that's the intention of it. And so it will, it will land for some kids, um, which is a great thing. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot we can do both you know, sort of preventatively, but also um, mindfully that does make a difference. Okay. So I really feel like people learn through story also. And I know we've shared a couple. Can you think of a story either for yourself, Emily, or for a teacher or a a district or in any level that they now shifted this lens that you're talking about, right? The lens that they wear and they're seeing, and it's transformed how they're teaching. Like can you think of a story about that? Well, I mean, I, I can certainly think about a story like that, but I'm going to just tell you one that's more personal than that, because I have now been speaking this language for the better part of six years. And all of my closest girlfriends who I spend a fair amount of time with, this is how they talk. <laughs> and so it's like, it's changed not only my professional experiences, but I can hear my girlfriends when they're upset about something, either through a text message or like for in person with one another, having a glass of wine or whatnot, they'll literally start by saying, oh my gosh, my stomach, I, I was so dysregulated today because this, you know, person did this to me and I just, or my husband, you know, started the day with that tone of voice and he just set me off. <laughs> like I could feel that in my body experience and I was totally activated. So language like activation, dysregulation, um, felt safety, those things have penetrated people's 
way of seeing the world. And I mean, I, I definitely hear it all the time through the work too, but just because it's more personal for me, I, it's, it's, I feel like it's, um, really satisfying. That's not the word I want to use. It's just really like reassuring, I guess, or reinforcing for me to know that so many of the people I love the most in the world now see the world in this way, because it helps them understand themselves differently. And it helps them rewrite their own narratives. You know what I'm saying? Like the way they see themselves and how they speak about themselves and their experiences is different. And wow. to me, that's like, yeah, that, I mean, that to me is the most powerful thing ever is when I see it in my own personal life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it, and it's how I talk about my own experiences as well. So it's helped me to rewrite a lot of my own narratives or even the ones that are emerging today. Like and my husband and I were, were you know, being crabby about something, I, I can say to him, it was the tone you started with. That tone sent my nervous system into fight or flight, which is why, I, and I'm always, I'm a fighter myself. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> so when he starts with a certain tone, my nervous system is just like, oh, got to protect, got to defend, you know? And I'm like, if you could just shift the tone. And when he shifts the tone, guess what? My nervous system senses safety. And then I'm back to my regulated self. Yeah. So. It's transformative, Emily. It really it's is. so transformative, Amy. It really, really, really is. And which is what I hear all the time from folks, but it really does. It's a totally different way of viewing the world and being in the world. So hopefully in listening today, professionals who work with kids, especially educators, have gotten like a little tease of how incredibly transformative this is for classrooms and for kids. So um, just a couple of just practical questions. If if I'm a teacher working in a school, can I do the regulated classroom by myself or do I need to do it with my school district or with my school? Like, how does it work? Yeah, no, great question. So yes, the answer is absolutely yes. There are two pathways. If you're an individual teacher looking to actually, well, there's three pathways. One is there's the guidebook that is a self-standing resource on an, on its own. And so a lot of people start there. They purchase the guidebook and then it's got all the practices it's got like 15 pages of the science and then it's got 75 pages of what to do because we know, I know that that's what you want. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a webinar um, that's on the website that's on demand that's 45 minutes and it's quick and dirty, but it gets you it gets you what you need in terms of knowledge and understanding so that you can literally start using this tomorrow in your classroom if you wanted to. Okay. And then the other thing too is I have enough people that just love this so much they want to train other people in it. And so there's actually seasonally, I host a virtual train the trainer where you can then take the training and then bring it right back to your school and be a trainer in your school. And with that, you also get four uh, sessions of implementation coaching. So there's a lot of support you for you. With your team? It's with me. It's with me. So, and yeah. And so each cohort gets that. So, you know, it's an opera, it's an awesome opportunity to engage with others that are doing this work too. And you will meet people from literally all over the world. Cause I have people who join from all over the world and you'll know that you're not alone and you'll feel, you'll feel even in a virtual experience, you'll feel, you'll feel regulated. You'll feel connected. You'll feel more in touch with your own nervous system. You'll better understand what might work for you to, you know, if you're going back to use this in your school, where's a good starting point for you and that sort of thing. But yes, most commonly I do the way in which people come to work with me is that their district or their school hires me and I come in and I do training with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not always the case. And a lot of people, like I said, a lot of people just start with the guidebook. Uh, And I also 
we, I'm really proud. Um, Emma, who is um, my support person, she does all the social media and she does a great job with it. And that really is such a living, breathing resource. I mean, it's just ideas constantly, strategies constantly, re, you know, affirmation and reinforcement of things and just helping people really, really get these lenses securely placed on their face, you know? And um, by the way, um, if you look at Emily's uh, social media, to Emily's point that she made earlier, that like something in your neuroception will pick up on how regulating it is. I love looking at Emily's social media because I feel regulated and I see the colors and somehow my nervous system is like, okay. I, I then I'll I can look at the content. Okay, so but I want to just review for people. I can do the regulated classroom with my district. I can do it as an individual. I can get the book. I can become a trainer even in my school by attending your fall workshop and all of that stuff I can find on your website. Correct. You can find it all through the website, regulatedclassroom.com. Oftentimes people should know this too. The ways in which I am invited to end up training in schools is through you all. Classroom teachers, counselors, psychologists, all those folks are who bring me to their decision makers and say, listen, we're interested in more information about this. So if this is something you're really interested in, this is something you should share with your administrator because believe it or not, the administrators are so hungering for something that is effective, that makes a difference, and that is tangible and practical. They want it as much for you all as you guys want it for yourselves. So bring it to them so that you can you can experience more support with it. You know, well, just, just to underscore this important piece, I will say to everybody who's listening, I don't think we've seen in our history professionals coming to us, Emily, just kind of um, overwhelmed with the complexity of children's behaviors. And so that's a lot due to post-pandemic state. It's a lot due to burnout for those of us who are professionals who've been working with kids for a long time. And so I just want to validate that and say like, there is help and support through programs like this. And so if that's you, if you get on Emily's website, right. And you're like, I need this. I think it's a great idea to go to people that get to make decisions for your district and say, what about this? And even if they won't, you can do it for yourself. Exactly. 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 So as we wrap up today, just a couple (laughs) of questions. Um, One thing uh, that people get wrong about this work tell me? Um, That's a good question. Um, A lot of people think, so you even used this language in the beginning. A lot of people think of it as a curriculum. It's more of a framework or program. So it's not a set of lesson plans. It's not something you do once every, you know, once a week for 40 minutes. It's not a scope and sequence. It's much more of a living way of being in the classroom. So it's more practice-based. And what are you doing from moment to moment to help the room feel safe and to help it be regulated? So I'd say that is the biggest misconception is that people think it's going to be an SEL curriculum, and it's not. Um, Although I did for a period of time, and I'm sure it's still on the website in places, call it SEL only because that was sort of the container to put it in. That's the bucket people would think of that had anything to do with stuff stuff outside of academics. So it's not an SEL curriculum. It is a framework for regulation and, you know, felt safety in the classroom. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a, the biggest misconception about it. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And then the next question is, um, what feels magical and life-giving in your work right now? 
Well, I, I get to do this for a living. I mean, this is so amazing that I get to do this where I oftentimes say, and Emma hears me say it, or Lily hears me say it, that I can't, I, to this day, I have no idea why this, this has gotten as far as it has and why I've had the good fortune to be where I am in terms of building something that is making change across this country and now in other countries too. Um, it feels just really kind of humbling and also mesmerizing that um, I get to help support people to feel better, which is what I always wanted to be able to do with my students. You know what I mean? I really wanted to be able to be effective so that they could feel and experience the world differently so that it would aid them in being healthy people, healthy kids, healthy teens, healthy adults, you know? So um, I get to do that for a living. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Like that's amazing. So love that. I love that. Okay. Last question, not hard by any means, but um, it's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What are you reaching for, Emily? <laughs> it's so funny. Um, probably something sweet. It's funny you say that's the last. So I've been on this crazy diet, my husband and I, and, um, we're not supposed to eat after like seven o'clock at night. So last night, like nine 30, you're watching something and I'm, I'm craving sweets, but we've eradicated the sweets in the house. So you know what I had last night? That was quite satisfying. Three big spoonfuls of fluff. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Right? And it's like, okay, that's the best I've got. That'll do. That'll do. You know, oh, that's so. awesome. I thought you were going to say something really wholesome like a mango and disappoint me, but I oh, like no. it. All right. Well, um, we will link up to all the ways to reach out and connect with you on the show notes and on our website. But I have to just say, Emily, from the bottom of my heart, um, you transform education and what it means to work with kids. And so thank you so much for this work that you're doing that gives life breathing work to professionals in kids' lives. Thank you. Thank you, Aim. Thanks for saying that. I really feel that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing here, please download my free resource called 10 Guiding Principles to Nurture Connection and Help Children and Families Thrive. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing yours because your humanity will heal others. Bye for now.